Welcome to the Voices of Aging podcast, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, or ASIC, a student-led collaborative organization for the study of aging at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we feature guests working in different aging-related areas, and they share their experiences and wisdom. We release two episodes every month, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to learn more about aging every time you hit play. This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Ben Rosenstein. Dr. Rosenstein is a faculty member of the St. John's Family Medicine Residency Program. He completed his master's in bioethics and medical school training at the University of Minnesota. He completed residency in family medicine at St. John's. He further pursued a fellowship in geriatric medicine at the University of Wisconsin. He practices in outpatient, inpatient, and long-term care settings, training medical students and residents in principles of geriatrics and primary care. His specific areas of interest include primary care geriatrics, osteoporosis, dementia diagnosis and management, delirium management and prevention, end-of-life care, and geriatrics education and advocacy. He recently was awarded the HRSA Geriatrics Academic Career Award to enhance geriatrics education at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Rosenstein, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So our episode today is focusing on delirium and a little bit of polypharmacy as well. Let's just start with the basics. What is delirium and why is this a particular concern for older adults? Yeah. So delirium, it has a few different definitions. Um, sometimes it's called acute brain failure. Um, but I think the most accurate definition uh, would be it's an acute change in cognition, particularly um, attention, and alertness, which can be both more alert or less alert. The other things that will sometimes go by uh, will be like more confused or altered mental status or ANO times one, but the full definition is a bit more descriptive. And Older adults tend to be more affected by it than other populations, though for what it's, for people's interest, we do see delirium in children, neonates, but there are certain changes in the body over time that make older adults a little bit more susceptible, and it's important because the downstream effects of delirium, um, as we learn more and more, are actually pretty significant. What are some of those downstream effects? The... One, I think that is most perhaps surprising and potentially most important is actually delirium and dementia have this connection. Um, And the studies most recently have made that connection stronger. And delirium is actually found to be a very significant risk factor for dementia. So they they have this, this kind of back and forth of those with dementia have some of the greatest risk of delirium, uh, and delirium itself can be a significant risk factor for dementia. 
What are some of the risk factors? Because I know maybe students listening in healthcare settings may have experience with delirium in an inpatient setting, um, but I'm assuming it can occur in other settings as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see it in all settings. Probably, as you said, most experiences in the inpatient setting. But again, it, we could see it in long-term care. Those that do more home visits, uh, home-based primary care, see it there. Some of the main risk factors, so older adults in general um, are at more risk. There are certain changes, physiologic changes that are normal with aging that increase the risk of developing delirium. Some of those being generally the blood-brain barrier is a little bit more permeable. Um, so CNS-acting drugs, for example, can cross more easily. There's generally a decreased amount of body water, generally a decreased uh, overall renal clearance. Uh, so the how medications are absorbed and excreted can change. Also, things like hearing loss and vision loss, which are fairly common as you get older, can be a risk factor on their own as well. And some of the main risk factors, and then as I said, dementia is a major risk factor itself. Depending on setting, some of the main risk factors for delirium are what medications are being used, what medications aren't being used sometimes, and then... Uh, kind of the reason the person may be admitted to the hospital, for example, certainly um, infections, electrolyte derangements, trauma, all those can be significant risk factors for delirium themselves. In other settings, say like in long-term care, we'll, we can see delirium, again, setting of an infection, heart failure exacerbation, for example, kind of these acute changes. Sometimes, I, I've seen it sometimes as like a first presentation of a mood change or mood disorder. Another place probably won't see it in like the hospital as much, but sometimes we see in long-term care settings is if somebody has to move for a certain reason, uh, they have to go from this floor to that floor, or more often something like they're moving from the assisted living part of the building to the nursing home long-term care. Um, There's a sometimes called movement stress, and that actually can precipitate a delirium. Yeah, and I so I heard you mention medications in a couple different ways in terms of how they mm-hmm. can contribute to delirium, and that, I think, brings us to our next topic perfectly, which is polypharmacy. Um, I think this term gets thrown around a lot, and not all of us really know exactly what it means, so maybe we can start there. Yeah, so polypharmacy... Most basic definition is person's on a lot of meds. Um, we tried to make that a little bit more universal, People, the definition people stick to. So we typically say that a person that has fi- at least five medications, they have polypharmacy. Sometimes the term hyperpolypharmacy is used when somebody's on 10 or more. Other ways this gets a little bit nuanced is there's uh, people will use terms like appropriate polypharmacy versus inappropriate polypharmacy. And why that arises is because that definition of five medicines or more, you can get to that really quick. My common example is you have an older person that has basically not much of a medical history, perhaps, and they are presenting for their first ever cardiomyopathy heart attack. With that, they have systolic dysfunction. So they have heart failure with uh, reduced ejection fraction and have coronary artery disease after having, say, an NSTEMI. Uh, they're going to be an aspirin, statin, beta blocker, an ACE or an ARB, 
probably a di- diuretic. We're already at five. <laughs> You're going to probably end up with a few more as well. But in that frame, those medicines would be appropriate. Yeah, that makes sense. So are is delirium a risk only in the case of inappropriate polypharmacy? Or is that maybe not the correct way to use those terms? So I'd say there's an increased risk of delirium associated with polypharmacy and not necessarily appropriate, inappropriate. I don't think we've actually really looked at it that way. But the other part that goes into is there are certain medicines that are more risk, we would say, for for um, delirium. So certainly the ones that everybody knows, like opioids, benzodiazepines, ones that sometimes go under radar are anticholinergic medications. There are some that are more prominent than others, so Benadryl or diphenhydramine uh, is probably the best known, but uh, things like hydroxazine that's often used for anxiety concerns is very anticholinergic. Methocarbamol, for example, flexoril, amitriptyline, um, some of the SSRIs have a lot more anticholinergic burden than others, and we know that those can precipitate delirium, certainly in an adult with Alzheimer's dementia, but even in somebody without. Um, again, that kind of goes into that blood-brain barrier permeability. The other part is somebody with polypharmacy, kind of regardless of what medicines they're on, there's just greater risk of an ad- of a drug-drug interaction especially if you're starting new ones in the context of an acute event. And the more medicines you have, the greater likelihood you have a drug-drug interaction. I kind of say like that the five medicines, there's probably an interaction, and you probably know what it is. Ten medicines, there's almost certainly an interaction. You may know what it is. Somebody has 20 medicines, they have at least one interaction, if not a few, and you may not know what they are. (laughs) You mentioned um, the connection between... Uh, delirium and perhaps the eventual uh, development of dementia. What are Mm -hmm. the other risks associated with um, having had uh, an episode of delirium previously? Other things that are associated with delirium, as I said, dementia, mortality, greater risk of institutionalization. So you may have been living independently and now you're looking at going to a nursing home, greater risk of falls, um, generally we're associated with most poor outcomes. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's, it's bad. Um, mm-hmm. so what can we, what can we do? How can we prevent delirium from occurring in the first place? Mm-hmm. One of the first things to do is recognize it's there. Because as I said, sometimes it goes under these other monikers like altered mental status or more confused or an A and O times four, but confused, which makes no sense. Um, <laughs> Uh, so saying like, Hey, this seems like a change. Um, is this delirium using a tool? I promote like the ultra brief cam confusion assessment method. It's pretty quick and easy. The, then there was a group in Scotland that developed a fairly similar test, but called the four AT. That's also a really useful one. And those basically are just a nice objective way to say we're seeing delirium from there. Um, then there's steps of what to do about it. I will take a step back. So to prevent it in the first place, say a person doesn't have a cognitively normal, for example, 77-year-old, things to do to prevent delirium in the first place, trying to avoid those 
with deliriogenic medicines. Um, so it, as you can, sometimes they're required. You know, a person just had a fracture, they're probably going to need some pain medicine. But trying to avoid them if they're not necessary, lowest dose, shortest amount of time. Or if somebody's on medicines you think are inappropriate, seeing if you can stop them. Sometimes things just hang around for a while. Other things, uh, we often try to, say, promote a good sleep cycle, trying to reduce noise. Uh, if people have hearing aids, making sure they have them, making sure they're charged. Good nutrition and uh, good uh, hydration, those are important. Keeping people active, kind of using the hospitals, the place where a lot of people see this, the hospital is kind of boring. Uh, <laughs> watching TV does not count as activity. So trying to get people mobile, ambulating as they can. Um, even, and again, there's a worker game with your therapist, level of mobility, even getting people like edge of bed or to a chair can uh, assist just with that, like keeping the person in time. Those are the big ones. If delirium occurs, I may be skipping ahead a little bit, but things to do to try to reduce the severity um, are kind of the same things. You know, again, re if people have hearing loss, vision loss, trying to promote their hearing and vision, it could be really hard for a person to understand what's going on around them if everything sounds really fuzzy. Using cues to maintain that circadian rhythm. We sometimes say frequent reorientation, which can be useful. You want to tell the person where they are and what the day of the week is. At the same time, if the person's not quite understanding it, you don't have to beat it into them. Uh, but kind of providing them a you're in a safe place sometimes can even be helpful. Uh, having family around, so that sort of, again, centers their brain back to where they are. If you have culprit medicines, reducing them, and then other things are like getting uh, your therapists involved, for example, to help manage that activity level. Like I said, delirium is a risk factor for falls. So sometimes we'll get worried about having somebody up and walking because we're worried about them falling. But actually, there's a lot of benefit to getting them up and walking. One way that I've seen at least the symptoms of delirium being treated is through antipsychotics. And I didn't mm -hmm. hear you mention that as a uh, <laughs> potential treatment. So I, um, I know this yeah. is something that's being discussed more and more, but can you talk a little bit about that decision? Yeah, to the core of things. Um, so take a step back a little bit. We're talking about delirium. Um, so we're talking about how its definition, how you diagnose it. Part of that can be is it hyperactive delirium? So the person's, they have more uh, activating symptoms. They're yelling out, they're pacing, um, trying to get out of bed, pulling lines, things like that. And then there's hypoactive delirium, which the person is really not responding. They look like they're asleep uh, oftentimes, but they, if you're trying to interact with them, they don't necessarily respond like you would expect. So depending on the situation is where the antipsychotics come in, but they are secondary to everything else. So antipsychotics are not a treatment of delirium. Antipsychotics are a sedative, really. Um, the place they're most often used is the person that has more hyperactive behaviors. And the primary place to use them is these are significant behaviors that cause, that risk harm to the person or others. So like they're lashing out, they're kicking, they're punching, biting, things like that. Because of whatever's going in their head, going on in their head, they are lashing out. And so 
antipsychotics may be an appropriate treatment to alleviate that. Other places, they don't really come into play. So for hypoactive delirium, which is actually the most common type, they often aren't used because the person is not lashing out. And oftentimes the person with hypoactive delirium is missed and their outcomes are worse because they just look like they're pleasantly asleep. Whereas the person with hyperactive delirium, unless they are having those more concerning behaviors, it's really all those other things we're talking about is the main things to do. Because a person that's maybe pacing or trying to get out of bed, there are ways to help address that that aren't just to sedate them. And then we also know that antipsychotics have themselves risks, risks of use and can uh, lead to poor outcomes as well. So trying to avoid them kind of as a go-to is what we're, we're working on educating people about. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's really important. Um, okay, as we begin to, to wrap up here, I just want to briefly bring the conversation back to polypharmacy. You were talking a little mm-hmm. bit about the importance of thinking through all of the medications that patient is on to ensure that they're all necessary. Um, I'm assuming this is somewhat of an interdisciplinary process where the pharmacist on the team is involved. Um, I'm just curious to learn a little bit more about uh, how you think through a patient's medications with the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I frequently uh, talk to a pharmacist colleague about what's being used and if we need it or if there are changes. Things that we will often work through, especially if we have, we're seeing somebody more complex, they have a larger medication list, for example. Things we'll often work through are, are these medicines still necessary? number of times I've seen aspirin twice a day that's been present for five years because of the hip surgery they had five years ago um, is kind of funny. Um, so you know, are, things, are, are those things still necessary? Um, are, they, are they effective? Um, sometimes medicines will get started to see if they alleviate some symptoms, and essentially it's, we never know if they really work. Other things we'll look at is are, if these medicines are necessary, are there ways to double or triple dip? Can we use one medicine to treat two or three things at once? Just try to compact things down. Or using combo pills, uh, those are a little bit more accessible at least, uh, with insurance coverage, so sometimes we can get by with those. Some things people... Uh, can start with in terms of how to approach polypharmacy. Uh, the beers list is probably one of the better known things. Uh, so those are medicines that are reviewed and said these probably shouldn't be used in older adults. Doesn't mean absolutely shouldn't, but probably not. It's kind of the, again, those are ones to key in on like, is this still needed? Is this doing what we want it to do? Is there an alternative? There's also the, what's called the start-stop criteria, which is sort of a list again, uh, but it's saying what medicines essentially you should start or what medicines you should stop. Um, and it also will outline sometimes like tapering schedules and things how to do that. Also looking at med- medication indications and making sure, again, it's kind of the, is the medicine doing what you want it to do. So sometimes medicines are used for something that's not necessarily their indication. They're not helpful. So that's again, the, is this needed in the first place? Thank you so much. It's really helpful to, to hear your approach. Um, and as we wrap up this episode, I just want to provide you the opportunity to um, make any plugs, any recommendations for anyone listening who might want to learn more. Uh, so make a plug for geriatrics. <laughs> uh, I think it's a great field. Um, I think we need more of us. Um, 
other things, I think you can look at the the Jerry Powell podcast is a kind of fun podcast. They often review up-to-date literature with the authors of uh, articles kind of reviewing some of these more topics and of how do they how do these things apply to older adults. I would also highlight the uh, American Geriatric Society. There's multiple resources available there for uh, students, residents, fellows, practicing physicians that they can find helpful. Don't necessarily need to be a member to, to, uh, to use them. Other things my plug. Also look, look at the, the Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program here, the website we have, and the educational resources that are there and also they're being developed. They're very useful modules that they have in the toolkits are a really nice review of geriatric syndromes, topics more specific to geriatrics, uh, kind of in an approachable way. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosenstein. This has been great, super informative. I know our audience is going to get a lot out of it. Thank you. Glad to be here. This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Follow Voices of Aging and ASIC on social media for more information about the episodes and guests on the podcast and to learn more about us as a student group. See you next time.